This is the Airplane Geeks Podcast. We aim to educate and inform you, explore and expand your passion for aviation, and to entertain you a little along the way. This episode, we talk with the CEO at Corporate Flight Attendant Training and Consulting about the training that corporate flight attendants should have. In the news, a Bombardier Challenger 600 series jet crashes on a Florida highway trying to make an emergency landing. Boeing makes major changes to the 737 MAX executive ranks. Two former Spirit Aerosystems employees have come forward with allegations. 737 MAX service difficulty reports. An FAA report makes over 50 quality recommendations for Boeing. And the FAA's Enhanced Air Traffic Collegiate Training Initiative Program. In our listener mail segment, we learn more about traveled work at Boeing. All that and more is coming up right now. Welcome to the Airplane Geeks podcast. This is episode 788 of the show where we talk aviation. I'm Max Flight, and with me is David Vanderhoof. He's our aviation historian from the American Helicopter Museum. Hello, everyone. Um, can somebody tell me where February went and January went? Because it's hard to believe that we're now approaching March. Um, and um, I just just saying this off front to everybody else who are like me, I'm sick of Boeing stories. And at this point, you should skip ahead to the guest and ignore the rest of the news <laughs> segment. Oh, it's unavoidable. I know. I know. Well, we'll try. Not too hard, though. And in all, fair, in all fairness, I've been dealing with Boeing stories since I started on this podcast. So <laughs> I, I, I'm like, I, I, have, I have the ability to say, okay, enough is enough. Wasn't there a movie once called Boeing, Boeing? Tony Curtis. Ah, yeah. man, that, that Micah, you can't put anything past that. I kid. know, especially when Jesus. it comes to movies. Well, you're wow. listening to Rob Mark right there. He's a, a BizJet pilot, he's a journalist, and he's publisher at JetWine.com. Hey, good evening to everybody, and I am really uh, glad that we're going to have my friend uh, uh, Susan Friedenberg on tonight. Uh, and it, uh, after all the work it took for you guys to get me connected, uh, I finally learned how to work this technology. So, But she's right, she's on top of it. This lady knows how to work. Okay. So anyway, welcome. <laughs> All right. Also joining us this episode is Max Trescott. He's back with us. He's host of Aviation News Talk podcast. He's a national CFI of the year, and he's an expert on the Cirrus aircraft. Hey, hello, everybody. I'm uh, coming to you from beautiful downtown Napa, California, where I'm visiting my daughter and uh, grandchild this week. And uh, so everybody's probably familiar with Napa. It's known both for auto parts and for wine. Now, I'm not sure if the auto parts are really come from here, but but certainly the wine does. It does. And in fact, uh, you, you might find it interesting that right now I am sitting in my uh, camper at a, a vineyard in, uh, where are we? Are we in Maryland? Yeah, we're in Maryland, right alongside the, uh, you know, the vines right outside the window. Uh, Excellent. But anyway, hey, let's introduce our guest. It's as Rob mentioned. <clears throat> also with what? us is our main man, Micah. 
hey, it's great to be here. I didn't know if I was invited or not at this point. And uh, I'm just so glad we finally have a guest that knows how to attend to us. Well, sorry, I almost forgot oh. you. I, I guess I, in my um, uh, excitement about moving us along so my uh, or until my batteries run out, um, that might pace this show, by the way, is uh, <laughs> how long the batteries last. Yeah, Mike, and, and since you made that great joke, uh, uh, Susan can only attend to us in flight. <laughs> that's that's true. That's true. That's true. Uh, that's yeah. I mean, see, she knows. Well, that's Susan. She's our guest, Susan Friedenberg. She's CEO at Corporate Flight Attendant Training and Consulting. Now, her school teaches students the professional role of a corporate flight attendant in business aviation, how to prepare an aircraft how to honor and adhere to passenger culinary and dietary restrictions, and how flight attendants can market themselves. Now, over the past 25 years, Susan has been committed to continually raising the standards for flight attendants in all aspects of business aviation. She's been active for decades with the NBAA, served on the association's flight attendant committee and the scholarship committee. Susan was also chair of the contract flight attendant group for two years. She's written numerous articles about the professional role of the corporate flight attendant and also created a safety presentation called Why You Need a Trained Person in the Back of Your Aircraft. Her company also provides a bridge training for flight techs, A&Ps who act in a dual role aboard a business aviation aircraft as both a mechanic and a flight attendant in the back of the plane. So, Susan, welcome back to the Airplane Geeks podcast. It's been eight years or so, and I think, well, we're definitely older, and maybe hopefully we're a little bit wiser now. What do you think? I hope so. I know I'm older. <laughs> I'm not sure about the wiser part, at least yeah, on my part. Yeah, yeah. The one thing that you don't know about me is that before COVID, I was doing stand-up comedy in Philadelphia and in Atlanta right. City. No kidding. Yeah. yeah, I have all my own material. I'm very funny. But when I do the work, you would, you know, I'm like... Serious. I don't say a word. Yeah. No jokes, nothing. <laughs> so is your com? if I search for you uh, somewhere... No. Where- you no, find. you won't find me. The last thing I need is the CEO of IBM or DuPont watching me do dirty comedy. I don't think so. Okay. Um, <laughs> I can think of a couple of follow-up questions, but I'll, I'll, I'll defer Although, I'll just say one thing real quick. Yes. Because you all know who Ron Silverman is, right? Yes. Ron, well, he's like my brother. And uh, when he was with EJM... Um, he and I have been friends for years and years. And when I told him I was in a competition at the Valley Forge Casino, um, there were five of us. I was the only girl and four guys. And he, he flew from Ohio to Philadelphia and drove to the Valley Forge Casino to watch me do comedy. And uh, John, um, John Celentano from Rudy's was supposed to meet him at the train station and he missed the train. So anyway... Um, Ron was like, who are you? <laughs> he, he said, what happened to the sophisticated Susan? And I said, she's on an airplane somewhere. He goes, you're like Joan Rivers meets Sarah Silverman. I had no idea. You are so funny. You're so funny. I went, thanks, Ron. Wow, you're right. We didn't know this about you. If I'm at the Valley Forge Casino, I'm betting on George Washington. <laughs> Good choice. Well, uh, Susan, of course, has uh, dedicated herself to the idea that egress training is critical to ensuring the safety of the passengers and the crew 
in an emergency. Um, and uh, after all, there is historically only one flight attendant in the back of a business aviation aircraft, so you really hope they know what they're doing. Uh, but we're going to dive into that topic coming up. First, we have some aviation news from the past week. As David uh, <laughs> mentioned, some of it has to do with Boeing. And uh, why don't we jump right into that? So are you guys ready? Ready from the West. Mainly ready. Midwest is on. <laughs> Delaware's on. First story comes from AP News. This is, quote, we've lost both engines, unquote. Pilot said before a private jet crashed into Florida interstate, killing two. Now, uh, this was about a uh, Bombardier Challenger 600 series jet. And you may have seen, you probably have seen the some of the footage on the news. Uh, the jet was carrying five people. They crashed while attempting to make an emergency landing on Interstate 75 near Naples, Florida. And in this case, the pilot and the co-pilot were killed. A crew member and two passengers uh, escaped. I guess, uh, Micah, wasn't this um, both engines had uh, quit operating? Yeah, it happened on February 4th, and uh, both engines went out. The pilot very calmly said he he got instructed to land at the Naples airport, pilot very calmly said, we're not going to make it. Uh, we lost both engines. Tried to come down on 75, clipped the car, and uh, lost a wing. And the pilot and the first officer uh, did not make it out, but a crew member, I'm assuming it must have been a flight attendant if it was a third crew member. And uh, yeah, and two, uh, two passengers did make it out with quite a few injuries and were taken to the hospital. Don't know how they, what, what what's happened to them. But when I saw the article, the news story, I said, this is a story we need to have on today when Susan's going to be here. When both engines... It, uh, go ahead, Rob. I was going to say something. Maybe you were going to say the same thing. But, I mean, when, when both engines... Uh, I I think both engines quit at the same time. Uh, or I can't remember the... But that usually indicates a fuel issue. Uh, either a, a, a loss of fuel pressure to both engines because of some mechanical issue, the pumps or whatever, or running out of gas. And we don't usually see that kind of thing uh, in a business jet. So, But again, there's not a whole lot of things that would cause both engines to, to uh, die at the same time. The preliminary is not out yet. I don't think it's going to be out for another couple of weeks because this was a pretty serious accident. Could the fuel have been contaminated? Sure, that's certainly possible. There's a warning that was put out a couple of years ago that uh, some FBOs have accidentally used the DEF that they have uh, on site for their fuel trucks to mix in with a diesel that powers the truck. And sometimes they accidentally mix it in with the, the jet fuel itself. So there have been a couple uh, instances of contamination. One of the things about this crash that was notable was just that the fire was so large that it seems likely that there was still fuel in the aircraft, uh, I would have expected a lot less fire if uh, if it had fuel exhaustion. Yeah, good point. Because yeah, the the footage, the video footage you see shows uh, quite a uh, quite a fireball, quite a quite an explosion there. Uh, Susan, do we know anything about who the who the third crew member was? Yeah, um, there's a couple things that I would like to speak 
to regarding this horrific crash. Um, first of all, the flight attendant, um, I'm not going to say her name or anything, but I, um, she reached out to me two days after the crash telling me she knows what I've been trying to do. And when the NTSB is done and she can really speak, she wants to get very involved with my mission. Um, but here's the deal. She went to fax training. She was corporate-specific, egress emergency trained, okay? Um, and this is my big thing in the industry, but we'll get to that. Putting non-trained people in the back of an airplane, it's just insane. I mean, even Amtrak has their people that work in the back of the trains. They're all trained for emergency evacuation. It's just outrageous. So 19 or less seats. There is no federal air regulation mandating that there be a trained body in the back of the plane. And there's only, as you said, Max, one flight attendant, uh, 20 or more seats. There has to be two flight attendants. But here's the, here's the deal. Um, well, her name, her first name's Sydney. That's all I can say. And so to me, she's a true heroine. She saved these people's lives because she knew what to do. And um, on a private jet, historically, there's, well, there's a jump seat. It either pulls out from the sidewall or there's a handle and it pulls out from the floor and you pull it up and then you're literally sitting between the two pilots, okay? Um, unlike the airlines, the forward entry door on any of our equipment has no window. So you really have no visual acuity to anything going on except you are right in the cockpit basically looking at the runway. So you can see the front, but you can't see anything else. And so on our jets, you can have permission if the passengers are okay with it to sit in the cabin because that's really the safest place for the flight attendant to be um, in the event of an evacuation, to be in the cabin sitting facing aft adjacent to the overwing exits, the four if it's a Gulf Stream, and exit if it's any other private jet, okay? The legacy, the Challenger or the Falcons. So you can get permission. So there are some CEOs that don't want the person in the cabin because of, an, you know, anonymity or they're talking or, you know, they just don't want you in the cabin. But, if, but you know, I don't know what the ratio is where you can be in the cabin or not, but Thank God she was in the cabin because if she had been up front, she would be dead too hmm. if she was sitting between those pilots. So she went into full evacuation mode and evacuated. I don't know why I thought there were three people, but you're saying there were two. Um, she saved their lives. And I hope that she gets the um, recognition that she deserves for this and that it will help bring to light why we need a trained person. But we can talk about that when we get to that. I mean, I don't want to interrupt your flow, but you did ask about that Florida crash. And it just it's just shocking that if she had been sitting in the front seat, she would be dead and probably the passengers would too because they wouldn't have known what to do. Hmm. And, and I should uh, mention perhaps that it, it's really a coincidence that uh, this this terrible accident has occurred uh, coincident with uh, you, Susan, being on this podcast. Um, but it's a great e example of this issue and, and why it needs to be addressed and how important it is. A, a timely uh, uh, topic for, for you. 
And we're going to get into that uh, much more deeply uh, coming up. But let's uh, let's move on to the next story. And uh, hold on to your seat, David. Here we go with the <laughs> the weekly Boeing segment. And um, what we see is there have been some changes at the top at uh, Boeing. Uh, we're looking at a story from CNN. Boeing removes the head of 737 MAX program in wake of safety incidents. And so there's been some switching around. And it, it's sort of an interesting uh, sequence of events here. Ed Clark, who had uh, who's an 18-year Boeing uh, veteran, He's been removed from the head of the 737 MAX jet program. Now, he previously held the roles of the 737 MAX chief engineer and chief 737 mechanic. So filling Ed Clark's position is Katie Ringgold. Um, She's now head of the 737 MAX program. Previously, she was vice president of 737 MAX deliveries. And at the same time, Boeing has announced the creation of a new executive position. This is kind of the important one in some respects. This is Senior Vice President for BCA Quality. BCA, of course, Boeing Commercial Aircraft. And this is being filled by Elizabeth Lund. So who is Elizabeth Lund? Well, she had been Senior Vice President and General Manager of Airplane Programs for Boeing Commercial Airplanes. So I think that position spans several models. That's not 737 MAX specific. And filling uh, her former position is Mike Fleming. Uh, He had been Senior Vice President of Development and Customer Service. So I guess the takeaway is, or or the, the important part, is that there's this new position, this quality position, Senior Vice President for BCA Quality, the head of the of the program, Ed Clark, is out, and a number of other people have ratcheted up to fill the vacancies on up the ladder. I just think this is silly. I mean, to, to have created a position for somebody to oversee quality when, uh, I mean, what's next? Uh, uh, you know, Mercedes-Benz is going to say... Uh, we're going to have a vice president in charge of making certain that the wheels don't fall off our cars uh, because there's been an issue with that or something equally inane. I, I mean, I think it's time Boeing just cleaned a little house, and I don't think they're doing that. I was going to say uh, something similar to that, Rob, and I wanted your opinions on it, but it just seems like— Would you have said it as, as well as I did? No, I, there's no way I could have said it as well as you could. <laughs> it would be oh, go impossible. Ahead, go ahead. But the word shuffling came up a couple of times, and that's the issue. Anybody within Boeing that has been working in a Boeing program at this point needs to be relieved of their duty, and you need to be bringing in outside people that can do the analysis to correct the problem. And I think that goes right on from the top, from the board, all the way down, uh, because there are issues, and the stockholders should be fighting about those issues and saying, we have lost faith in you, and it's time to replace just about everyone. I pretty much agree. Um, I, I, I do like the idea of uh, creating a... Uh, a new quality position, but to me, that should be filled by, like you say, Mike, as you say, Mike, uh, filled by an outsider, not by an insider. You need somebody with a with a different perspective, 
um, to, to look at it. And it, it shouldn't be based on their, their expertise with the, uh, with the aircraft programs. It should be based on their expertise with quality culture. And that position should have an enormous, in my opinion, an enormous amount of power over the, you know, the, the other uh, internal organizations and, and the folks who've been with the company for a long time in order to make some sweeping changes that, again, impact the culture. Uh, but and I just don't, I don't get that feeling when I, when I look at this and look at the shuffling that's, that's going on. So I, I'm a little disappointed, I have to say. A little? I'm, I'm a lot. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Now, one of the things that I learned, I remember from my favorite college instructor when I was a graduate student, and I remember his name was Gil Crowell. He said, he was a southern gentleman, said, you can't designate a responsibility without designating authority. Mm-hmm. And they need to have somebody to come in there that is both responsible and has overriding authority to do whatever is necessary to fix the problem. And that's not what Boeing wants to do. They don't want to fix the problem if it's going to really irritate the shareholders. Or although, as we're going to see in a little bit, the shareholders in some places are pretty upset anyway. Now, there's some other um, other news with respect to all this in Spirit Aerosystems. Uh, an item in the Seattle Times, uh, this is with Boeing in hot seat, claims against supplier Spirit Aerosystems take shape. And uh, we see now that we have two former Spirit Aerosystems employees uh, coming forward with allegations. And, uh, uh, Mike, these, these are pretty serious allegations. Again, it's saying what we've all assumed all along is that uh, every, everybody at Spirit and everybody at Boeing knew that there were issues and nobody was doing anything about it to correct it. And then that's basically uh, we could go into the specific details, but there's really no need to because that's what's happening. Yeah, these two, um, these two former employees, um, the first one who had, has been speaking uh, for a period of time was a quality inspector at their Wichita plant, Spirit Aerosystems Wichita plant. And he was fired in 2022 uh, for allegedly failing to conduct inspections that were his responsibility. And uh, according to the company, as a result of that, some defective tail fin fittings were shipped to Boeing. Uh, But he says that his firing was actually retaliation for repeatedly calling out manufacturing errors. So uh, he's, you know, he's got that background. and, And what's new is now we have a second also former employee, who uh, who worked along the alongside the first uh, the first whistleblower and he's basically uh, corroborated the allegations. This is building. I think it's going to continue to to build, and uh, we'll see lots of charges and uh, lots of claims made, allegations made uh, as as this moves forward. People are going to try to well try to protect themselves. Others are going to try to uh, expose things that need perhaps exposing. Um, I think it was, was it last episode? I think, or maybe the one before, uh, we had an item from, uh, something called the lever and, uh, we have another one now. This is, uh, airlines filed 1800 reports warning regulators about Boeing's 737 max. And this is about something called service difficulty reports. 1800 
service difficulty reports concerning the 737 MAX were filed by operators. This is over the last three years. But what's especially interesting that of those 1,800 service difficulty reports, 1,230 of them came from Alaska Airlines. And again, these are over 737 MAX specific. And also in, over that same time period, those same three years, uh, Alaska Airlines also filed some of those reports uh, concerning its Airbus A321 aircraft to the to the number of 25 reports. So 1,230 737 MAX reports and 25 A21 reports. Now, granted, they had a much bigger fleet of 737 MAXs than they did A321s at the time. They were getting rid of the A321s. Nonetheless... <laughs> This is a, a large number, but what the article doesn't say is how many reports have been filed on other aircraft. So we don't know if these kinds of reports are something that happen regularly or if this is specific to the 737 MAX. But with everything that's been going on with the 737 MAX, it sounds like it's specific to it and uh, and significant. Now, are these... Service difficulty reports, these are required under Part 121 where certificate holders have to file these reports uh, for the occurrence or detection of certain failures or malfunctions or defects. And the uh, the FAR spells out pretty specifically what must be reported. Uh, we'll put a link in the show notes uh, to this Part 121 paragraph. Uh, it, it's kind of interesting in terms of what's included, certain fires have to be reported, certain types of fires or engine shutdowns, damage caused by engine exhaust systems uh, requires a service difficulty reports. Also, components that cause toxic or noxious fumes uh, in the cabin, fuel system leakages, brake issues, structure repairs, uh, other failures or malfunctions that uh, occurs if they endanger or may endanger the safe operation of an aircraft. The ones listed in this article on the 737 MAX include fuel leaks on potentially hundreds of planes that were caused by misapplied sealant, malfunctioning stabilizer motors, debris found in fuel tanks, engine stalls during takeoff, and malfunctioning anti-ice systems. Doesn't sound too good to me. Yeah, it is uh, it is really concerning. Uh, you know, if you're wondering, sorry, what's going on? What's the FAA? What's the DOT doing about all this? And uh, Max, uh, you found uh, an article from Dominic Gates, I think, in the Seattle Times that just came out today about some, uh, well, the results of a of an FAA panel. Yes. So on Monday, the FAA issued a report that they had commissioned. And essentially, they had uh, 24 expert members of the aviation community uh, convened by the FAA, and they reviewed Boeing documents, uh, they conducted surveys, uh, they interviewed employees across uh, multiple locations, and essentially the report heavily criticizes Boeing's safety culture, highlighting what they say is a significant gap between senior management and frontline employees regarding safety oversight. Uh, they made over 50 recommendations and essentially, they were emphasizing a disconnect between the messaging from the executives and the, the beliefs at lower levels in the organization. Uh, and so they talked in particular about um, 
you know, some improvements have been made by Boeing since 2020 about their ongoing concerns uh, regarding retaliation against whistleblowers. And apparently the Boeing's white collar union echoed some of those sentiments and emphasized a fear of career repercussions for people who report safety issues. Uh, so the, the report urges Boeing to adopt the recommendations and put together a comprehensive safety plan within the next six months to address the recommendations. Yeah, I haven't. This just came out today as we record this, I guess. And um, I'm going to dig into the report a little bit. We have a link to the report, the actual report. I'll we'll put that in the show notes. But uh, I'm uh, I'm curious to see uh, you know, how far the report goes. I, I guess it was uh, produced by an independent uh, group of, of of aviation experts. In other words, it, is is that correct? It wasn't just like an FAA group of, of people. Yes. Yes. So the FAA appointed these outside experts to, uh, to take a look at this. All right. Good. All right. David, that's probably enough Boeing, uh, Boeing news for this week. I'm sure we'll be back next week with more. But in the meantime, um, <laughs> in the meantime, uh, uh, Rob, as well as uh, uh, one of our great listeners, Tom, came uh, to us with a an item from the FAA. FAA moves to accelerate air traffic controller hiring by enhancing college training program. Rob, what do we see going on here? Uh, actually, what this should probably be titled at is that they have restarted the program because uh, FAA had a program like this uh, where a number of uh, uh, community colleges would run classes to train people to become air traffic controllers. And essentially, the uh, the classes at the community college level uh, were such that uh, when the students graduated, they could skip going to the uh, FAA Academy down in Oklahoma City and go right to a particular tower or in route center or wh- wherever they might, uh, they might need them. And then... Um, Maybe six years ago, the FAA suddenly saw the light and realized that its uh, hiring practices uh, were not uh, diverse enough. And in the middle of trying to fix that problem, uh, they they killed this, uh, uh, you know, a, a community college initiative, and um, and so they deprived themselves. Of of a, uh, a rich source of new people that had already proven they had the acumen to understand the the topics that would go on, um, they would still need to to get through the training at a at a, a tower or a radar room or whatever. But but this gave them a little boost up, and then FAA decided, no, we're not going to do that anymore, and uh, and they left a lot of people hanging that were just recently graduated or already enrolled in these programs. And, and somebody, thank God, at FAA said, maybe that wasn't such a great idea. Let's see, we're short of people, and these people could help. Tra- maybe we should reinstate that program. And apparently somebody at uh, 800 uh, Independence Avenue said, yeah, I think that's a good idea. So this is the result. And so uh, we hope that we will see some uh, uh, increased, uh, uh, you know, uh, 
what do they call it when they're trying to put bodies throughput or something? I think when you're trying to push a specific number of people through a pipeline. Uh, and again, but they still need to get through the training, which it, for air traffic, it's 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 not easy. Uh, it's uh, it can take years to uh, to train somebody uh, to become a, a controller on their own. So, um, but again, they're 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 trying to fix the problem. I, but we'll see what happens. You know, I I looked around and I found the FAA list of approved schools uh, for this type of training, and I. I counted, and I could have counted wrong, but I counted 31 of them, 31 schools that are approved to provide this uh, this training, um, which, which, you know, there's a good distribution of locations where, you know, where folks can receive this kind of training. Or I guess maybe it's more accurate to say, Rob, that where, where they can get a degree, uh, I guess an aviation degree, but it, that it includes this kind of training. Maybe that's a better way to say it. Uh, that that yes that that is a better way to say it and uh, again I'm just glad that it's it's uh, back on the uh, on the program because again uh, they're they're short of bodies uh, it's much like the uh, pilot uh, uh, we lost Max <laughs> well I hope he's uh, still recording uh, but it's like the pilot industry uh, we are short of people because many uh, of uh, the old folk, people way older than me, of course, uh, are retiring. And, uh, and and there's not enough people to, to fill the hole. So uh, we'll see how this goes. Well, do you think that they made the retirement age 65, right? Oh, no, no. Controllers, actually. That's no, pilots. Question, but, oh, pilots. Um, but... Uh, it still is 65. They wanted to raise it again to right. 67, uh-huh. and uh, and that didn't pass. Um, but it, what's interesting is that for controllers, controllers are required to retire at age 56, uh, and uh, it's it's always been that way. Uh, but as somebody that I was interviewing for a story told me the other day, we were talking about the pilot side. He said, "So where's the research?" Where's the research that shows that pilots were were useless at age 60 or at 65 or at 60? There's nothing. These are arbitrary, politically driven, uh, you know, numbers. And again, I don't know if that is absolutely true, but that's at least what I'm hearing. Hmm. And Max, I'm glad to see you're back. I did Can drop I just out. tell you something real quick that my father always said? Yes, Susan. My my dad had a small plane. He lo- he was a pilot. He had a Cherokee Archer, and he and my mom flew all over the place with it. But Daddy always said, in life, you want an old lawyer that can really argue. You want a young doctor who knows all the new advances in medicine, and you want an old pilot that can land in crosswinds and in inclement weather <laughs> and really knows how to put an airplane down who's had years of experience. And Daddy said, I'm an old pilot. That's what he said. <laughs> that sounds like really good. When I get on an airliner, I always take a look in the, the cockpit and see there's hopefully some gray hair in there. That always makes me feel a little better when I get on an airliner. Yeah. It does. It does. Well, again, we're uh, speaking with Susan Friedenberg, and uh, Susan, 
Again, um, it's great to have you back on the show. It's been a long time. This issue of the uh, the training of flight attendants or even the existence of a real flight attendant in a business jet has been around for a long time, hasn't it? I mean, you've this is an issue that's something that you've been working towards for, for quite a while. 30-some years. Why is it taking so long? Because nobody will listen. The FAA doesn't care about Part 91 and 135. Um, the NBAA doesn't care. And um, I have begged for years for us to have an FAR-mandated requiring a corporate-specific egress train. Now, I don't teach emergency. I teach everything else. But I have not stopped speaking out on this for, well, for years. And Rob knows because I had his ear in, in England, like, yakking away on how cra- crazy it was. He had no idea. And then we wound up writing an article together. But, you know, it just makes me crazy to think that, like, for instance, the Gulfstream 550, okay, Ten or more passengers, you must have a corporate-specific egress-trained person. It can be a pilot that's not flying. It could be a flight tech, but they have to go through facts or flight safety. And those are the only two really recognized vendors in this country for emergency, Flight Safety International and Facts Air Care Crews. That's it. And anybody else has kind of looked – well, anyway, those are the two best. And and so – um, on the Gulfstream 550, 10 or more people, you must have a trained person for egress. And they said it has to do with the shape of the overwing exits and the distance to the forward entry door. Well, I don't get this. Why are 10 people's lives more valuable than nine people or six people? And, you know, I have been yelling about this for years and nobody will listen. I mean, I'm always speaking out and bugging everybody and begging FAA people on LinkedIn to please call me so that we can try to get something done. And everybody just ignores the topic. I mean, those passengers would be dead. And, you know, the thing is, is that when people get on a private jet and they see a well-coiffed female or male, they're assuming from the, because of their commercial airline travel, they're assuming that that person in the back is trained to save their lives. When in fact, that person like the lap dancer, if you didn't know, that this one really gets me. Um, February 2nd of 2005, a challenger out of Florida, uh, the pilots were near a strip bar and they had pictures of a blonde, a brunette, and a redhead. And they picked the blonde for this trip and threw her in the back of this airplane. And as we all know, that airplane, there was snow, a, there was a, a fuel imbalance, there was... Um, Allegedly, there was um, an insurance issue with the plane. The one pilot, the, the PIC, his medical had expired, and there was um, whatever. But you know, they took off, and this lap dancer. I mean, I'm not her mother, so I'm not making any judgments on what she does on the side. But you know, she had no business, and the pilots had no business putting her or anybody untrained in the back. And, you know, when they took off and then they went flying across Highway 46 and slammed into that building, this girl was screaming, oh, my God, oh, my God, and covered her face and was flipping out. And the passenger opened the Challenger door, the forward door. She didn't even know how to open the door. And she was the first one off and hitchhiked to a hospital. (laughs) 
passengers didn't have their seatbelts on. And one guy, you know, they took off. Uh, he had glass in his hand. I mean, where in life do you you put somebody? I mean, I just don't understand it. And then Montrose, Colorado, the Challenger uh, 600, November of 2004. You know, you know, do you remember that crash? The NBC guy. Yeah. Dick Ebersole, the NBC the NBC uh, football commentator was on that jet with his son and I don't know who else. And they took an, a commercial flight attendant, a guy. I just found out that, um, well, he was a U.S. Air flight attendant before they were American. And um, he had no training for our jets. And um, he was standing up. They, they, whatever, he's dead. So he's dead. And Dick Ebersole's son is dead. And it's just a travesty. I mean, Susan, the question that I had um, that, that I wanted to ask you, I, that flight attendant, you said, died. And unfortunately, Dick Ebersole also lost his son. Would a trained flight attendant have made a difference in that accident? Do we have documentation? That, that's what I was been curious. We just had a show, you know, a, a news story where the flight attendant saved lives. Do we have any news stories where the flight attendant Absolutely did not, or we know a flight attendant would have made a difference. That, that's what I have been curious about, because I see what you're saying, and it makes complete sense to me. But I'm just looking for the proof of the, like, the older pilots, you know, what was what Rob was asked about with that. Is there anything there? Um, I know that there was a crash in Pennsylvania. I don't remember what equipment it was, and nobody survived. I don't know what the issue was, but everybody pa- perished in that one. Um I mean, having a train that this person from U.S. Air had no idea how to evacuate a private jet. I mean, he it was an overwing exit in the forward entry door. That's it. And I mean, of course, the baggage door. But, you know, if if this person had been flight safety or facts trained, they would have been in their seat. They wouldn't have been standing up during taxi because you're supposed to be in your seat buckled up whether you're in the front between the pilots or if you're in an air-facing seat in the cabin but i don't know i don't know what the stats are with that mike uh, one thing to keep in mind is that we know for a fact that there have been numerous airliner accidents in which the only reason that so many people uh, lived is that they had flight attendants in the back that knew their shit, and they were able to move people. Yeah, exactly. But corporate is different. These are privately owned aircraft, and the FAA had... I I remember when Susan and I met that... How old... We were teenagers, I think, back then, uh, if (laughs) I remember Well, Susan said she's been doing this for 30 years, so I think she started when she was like seven. I've been doing corporate since 1984. Yeah, Micah knows what he's talking about. Um, no, but seriously, and we were—I remember—we were out talking uh, at we were at some event in London for something, and uh, and she got me started about oh yeah, I fly business jets and blah blah blah. She said, "Well, do, do you know that flight attendants don't even have to be certified to operate in the back of a business jet?" I said, "Get out of here! Come on, the the feds require that of everybody. They're all trained." And she said. Uh uh-uh. uh, and she showed me. And I went, "Holy smokes!" I mean, I had been flying these airplanes, and I had no idea that the uh, the uh, feds did not require uh, the flight attendants to be trained and certified as they are 
in a uh, an airliner, a Part 121 uh, carrier, uh, and even a, a Part 135, a large aircraft, they still have to be trained, don't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I when I flew for it, Capital Air, not Capital Airlines, I flew for Capital Air. It was a 135 major charter operation out of Smyrna, Tennessee, and um, you know we flew DC-8 stretches in the Airbus and our our emergency evacuation training it was it was much better than american airlines i mean i flew for american for 7 years and left to fly for capital um and you know i was amazed at the difference in the training with american it was you know did you use enough first a person's names in first class and let me look at how you're dressed and you know where's your closest fire bottle i mean it was hardly anything and then with capital air you were literally um check ridden for three to four hours going to europe it was outrageous what you had to go through and if you didn't pass your check ride you um had to stay in Frankfurt or Brussels until they airlined somebody in to cover the trip and until until you went back to recurrent it was intense. I'm, I'm going to ask a question, and, and I'm, I'm asking the question. I, I believe what you're saying, and I agree with you completely, but I want to ask the questions that I think some of our listeners might ask, okay? Sure. Um, the In Part 121, Part 135, the rules with the FAA are in place because we're protecting the public. When we're talking about more private aircraft, isn't it the individuals, the owners, their responsibility to make a decision as what they want to have as opposed to be told by the FAA or by the government that you must have this? Well, that that's true. And there are some operations that absolutely will not fly without an egress-trained person. And then there's some operations where um, they don't want a person in the back of the plane, maybe for anonymity or, you know, it's a flying office at 46,000 feet and they're, they're conducting business. and Or it could be a CEO's wife does not want a female in, in the back of the plane with her husband. Or, it, you know, I mean, there's so many weird reasons why they might not want you. But, you know, a lot of it is money driven, which really makes me crazy because um, as I was I think I was mentioning this to Max the other day, is that, you know, initial emergency evacuation training is about $4,000, okay? Um, and then recurrent training every year is about 3000 You have to go to recurrent every year. Now, there are some operations that just, you know, they don't want to pay for that and they don't want to give you a salary. They don't want to pay a full-time salary, benefits, uh, we don't wear uniforms. We just wear stunning suits. And um, <laughs> at least I wear stunning suits. And, you know, it, it's, you know, they don't want to. And, and my, my argument with that is the APU is running. The passengers are three hours late. What did that cost? Hmm. Okay. And then, you know, I, I just don't get it. Contract flight attendants, you know, a lot of companies will only hire contract flight attendants to give them a daily rate because they don't want to pay a full-time salary. But, you know, I just do not understand it. We are an industry that mitigates risk, except when it comes to the cabin. So thank God for this young lady that saved those two people's lives. And, you know, I think that CEOs um, need to get on the airplane and say, are you trained? Because if she or he looks 
like a flight attendant. The assumption is they're trained to save my life just like the airlines. Hmm. Unless the passengers were expecting a lap dancer. <laughs> I can't tell you how crazy that makes me. You know, and so I just, I don't get it. And we don't even use the word, you can't say that you're certified in this industry. They'll say, oh, well, I went to flight safety or fax training, so I'm certified. No, you're not certified because we're not required. Only 121 people are certified. So, I mean, I'm just, I, I, I cannot die without knowing that I got an FAR mandated. And when I do my trainings, even though I don't teach emergency, I'm, I tell my students, you're my legacy. I fall in love with all my students, you know, and I'm there for them 24-7. I mean, I had a phone call yesterday from a student that had an issue and wanted me to um, collaborate with what a solution would be. You know, I don't just take their money and disappear. I'm there to support them because if they look good, that's, they'll get called back. I don't mean physically if they look good because of the mission. But, you know, I, I just don't understand it. And, and I had... Um, this woman come and speak at one of our flight attendant conferences. Um, she was the flight attendant in Carrollton, Georgia, for uh, I think it was the Delta Connection that crashed in Carrollton um, on a turbo. I think it was a, a turbo prop. I'm not sure what the equipment was. It was years ago. Uh, Robin Feck is her name, and she came and spoke, and she saved the two pilots lives she 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 had somebody break the window and pull him out of the cockpit and she saved about 25 people's lives she was the sole flight attendant and if she hadn't been on the plane everybody would have died and so i had her come speak hoping that that would make a difference i also had doreen welsh come and speak who was the back end flight attendant on the hudson crash and what that was like for her and, you know, the one thing that I'm really worried about is I don't want this young lady that saved those lives to have um, survivor guilt. And when she, we texted and I, I said to her, you cannot have survivor guilt. You're a heroine. You saved, I thought it was three people, but you saved two people's lives. Do not have guilt. Do not have guilt. So I'm hooking her up with Doreen from the Hudson crash so that they can talk to the same language. I mean, I, I, I've evacuated three planes, but a DC-8 stretch and, a, and two Gulf Streams. But, um, you know, what the DC-8 stretch, it was pretty intense. But, you know, the Gulf Streams, it was no big deal. But, you know, if there hadn't been anybody in the back, it could have been a big deal. But, you know, I, I just can't rest until I get this handled. So if there's anybody out there from the FAA, please, please, we need to educate our CEOs and the aviation managers. Here's another scenario. You just ordered $6,000 in catering. They wanted a five-course hot meal. There's seven people, $6,000, and they're three hours late. So now you've lost money with the APU running. And then they say, well, we were late because we stopped for dinner on the way. I can't tell you how many times I've had that happen. And then I've given the food to, um, to shelters. I put it in. Uh, all it on ice, and I, I'll drive it to a shelter. And that's all the, the same prices, or similar to what it would cost to train one person for a year. But but you know, I think sometimes that this is as what we used to see in automobiles, where people say, "Hey, it's my life." If I don't want to wear a seatbelt, I don't need the government jumping down my throat telling me I should have a shoulder harness and all the, I'm a private citizen, I demand my rights. Well, 
now we are, we laugh at that kind of thing. Not not the rights, but the fact that uh, everybody wears a seatbelt and and thousands of lives have been saved. But in a private, uh, it, I forgot who mentioned it before, but uh, in a private enterprise uh, or a, a machine operated by a, a private company. Well, yeah, you know, if if the CEO doesn't want a a, a flight attendant trained and and he doesn't get out of the back, I guess that's the way it goes. But it's when they take people with them that do not understand that that the person sitting there facing them that looks like a flight attendant isn't going to be able to do squat for them if that airplane, uh, you know, goes off the end of the runway and they can't open the door. Then people are yelling, how could this possibly have happened? Well, because, you know, we hear this privacy thing and, and we don't want to get the FAA upset and uh, I, who knows what it is. But it's been like that for as long as, well, since I, since I met Susan, I mean, it was obviously going on a whole lot uh, longer than that, but I didn't know it. Well, are I there- mean, why is there why is there a defibrillator? Sorry, Max, but you know, ninety percent of the aircraft have defibrillators. Okay, why is there a defibrillator on the plane if nobody knows how to use it? The pilots are not allowed out of their seats except to go to the bathroom or stretch or to stretch their legs or use the bathroom or an aircraft emergency. It's ninety one point one twenty three or something like that in the FARs. Sounds like a radio station. But you know, the the bottom line is that, you know, why is there a def- why is there a def- I, I can answer that question if you want it answered. Sure. Defibrillator is self-explanatory. You open it up, it shows you exactly where to attach the tags, and it tells you exactly what to do and when to give a shock. Yeah, if you're by yourself, Mika, you're the only passenger, and you go into defibrillation. Oh, if, I, if I'm by myself, yeah, I need somebody else to do it for me. Yeah. And the vestibule door is shut, and then at 10,000 feet, the co-pilot comes back to open the door, and the and the passenger is dead on arrival, or the passenger starts choking, or... You know, I mean, if it's a wife and a husband and one of them goes into defibrillation, the other one's going to be so panicked, they're not going to know what to do. They're going to be seeing, you know, they're going to be freaking out. My husband's having a heart attack. They, they've never seen a defibrillator. So I, I just, I don't know. Susan, I'm curious. You mentioned three evacuations. You've personally evacuated three aircraft. Wow. That sounds like incredibly bad luck or there are a lot more evacuations going on than I would have guessed. Tell us about one of those that was particularly, you know, complicated or dramatic or. Well, the two Gulfstream ones were not a, not a really big deal. Um, We were at like 6,000 feet and my pilot said, Susan, come forward. I was sitting in the back and I went immediately, I knew he didn't want coffee, you know, I went running up front and he said, do you smell smoke back there? I said, absolutely not. And I said, I'll be right back. And he said, it's coming from the baggage. And I said, okay, so, you know, we're trained to take the back of our hand and put it on the lav door. It was cold. And then I opened the door um, and I didn't smell anything. And then I uh, put my hand on the baggage door, nothing. I opened the baggage door, white electrical smoke. I immediately slammed the door, shut off all cabin power immediately. Now, a non the lap dancer wouldn't know to do that, okay? And I went running up front and I said, uh, electrical fire, electrical fire. And he said, just 
we were now at like 2,000 feet and they had declared an emergency. And all I told the passengers was, there's a little issue. Just stay in your seats. Don't get up. Not, you know, I didn't have time to brief them or really do anything. I said, we're, we're, we're fine. But when we land, I'm going to get you off the plane really fast. And, you know, and I did. And then they got off and every, you know, the trucks came and there was an electrical fire in the baggage compartment. I didn't have time to really brief them. I said, just tighten your seatbelts and don't get up till I tell you to. Um, the other one was a DC-8 stretch on, with Capital Air. And I was a back-end flight attendant with my friend Virginia and um, we were taxiing and they had overfueled the starboard outboard engine and it caught on fire and we're taxiing and I was sitting in the back jump seat facing aft and I didn't smell anything, but I heard people screaming and I all of a sudden I turn around and I see people opening the overwing exit on the left side, removing <laughs> the cockpit didn't even know it. And the, and the tower said to Capital Air, you've got passengers on your wing. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> and then, you know, he halted, he stopped, and, you know, we did a full-blown evacuation, and it was just unbelievable, everything that they say about people with the carry-on bags. And I'm five, two and a half, and weigh 113 pounds, and Virginia is a big girl, and we had, bigger than me, and we had the... Um, the aft lav doors open and I'm at the exit, right? And I'm grabbing their bags, throwing them to Virginia and then kneeing them in the back and pushing them down and getting them down the chute. And I thought, I can't, you know, and you just, when you're trained, just like Sydney did on the Challenger, you just, you, you don't think about, oh my God, you know, you just do what you do because I've been through emergency training every year my whole life, except the last couple of years I haven't gone because I'm not flying right now. But so I'm, I'm, I need to go back to recurrent if I decide to go back to being a corporate flight attendant and not do my trainings. But you just kind of go into emergency evacuation mode. You know, we had no injuries. Everything was fine. And but it's unbelievable. People want to take their stuff. And I have to tell you, the Japan Airlines they they don't do briefings you know we do briefings on private jets they're not like the airlines with the man the whole pointing and all this we you develop your own sense of style for briefing um on a private jet but on that japan air their briefing was a um a visual it was it was on the um air shows and on the screens it's i have it i can send it to you all to see it it is the most unbelievable briefing. I've never seen anything like this in my life. Plus, the Japanese culture is to pay attention and comply, you know. And so, I mean, that was a flawless evacuation, and that airplane was on fire, too. Now, Capital Air used to do a lot of military-type uh, flights. Did you have, uh, I mean, were these able-bodied young folks that were able to dash out on the wing quickly? Did that help? Well, this wasn't a military flight. Those were the the, uh, the CAM flights or the, the uh, military flights. I, I, I started um, with American towards the end of the Vietnam War. Um, I didn't, with Capital, and they did all those flights the Mac flights. They did all of those flights to Vietnam, but I wasn't there when they did those. Um, but can I just tell you, I don't know if I could, I don't care. I have no filter. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this will be good. 
you know what it is? When people say, I've, I've reached a certain age where uh, I've just lost my filter. You haven't lost your filter. You just don't care anymore. So just <laughs> say it. Yeah. I don't. So when I flew for American at, towards the end of the war, you know, um, I was against the war, but never against the veterans. And my father was a major World War II hero. I love the veterans. I'm very involved in veterans affairs. And I always loved the veterans. It had nothing to do with them. They were stuck in a way having to go. Um, but when we would pick them up with the drill sergeant or whoever, and then take them, this was American, and take them to California to go to basic training. And they were what, like, how old, like 18, 19 years old? So I used to go up to first class and steal minis. And then I would come back and put them in coffee paper cups. And I would give them to these young guys. And I got busted so many times by the drill sergeant or whatever who would say, you're not allowed to do that. And I would say, you know what, sir, you might be in charge of them, but I'm here on this airplane. And if they're old enough to go to war and fight, they're old enough for me to give them a cocktail. Okay. (laughs) And my father used to go, you tell him, Susan. (laughs) (laughs) But that's how I felt. You know, I mean, I'm a veteran's daughter. I love our veterans and. You know, but during I didn't capital air did do all the Mac trips and all the, you know, the military things. I didn't I wasn't there then. Uh, one, one thing that I've been thinking about here, I'm wondering if there are other stakeholders in this, because uh, I mean, we don't seem to be making any progress on this issue with with the FAA. Are there other stakeholders in this that have some power uh, that could affect some changes? I don't know, insurance companies or something. You know, insurance companies, you know, require that in order to be covered under a, you know, corporate policy that they have to employ flight attendants, not employ, but utilize flight attendants who are trained properly or something like that. Is there someone else? Well, it's interesting, Max, that you say that because I've even called aviation insurance companies Uh. and said to them, if there is an egress trained person in the back that can save lives, would you reduce the price of aircraft insurance and liability? Hmm. Thinking that that might get to the aviation manager, chief pilot, or the CEOs. They said, no, we can't do that. Hmm. And I would like to think that the, you know, the head of flight safety, I mean, everybody knows I haven't stopped talking about this for years. And, you know, I mean, I would think that the head of facts training and the head of flight safety would want to get involved in this. It would behoove them because they'll make a lot more money training people. But I, I just don't understand it. And um, I, I told Rob this and it's in, I did a podcast a few weeks ago and um, I'll, I'll share this quick story. It, it's, I was at a major NBAA convention you know, like there's, what, 20,000 people at those conventions. And there was a major breakout session with the FAA, five FAA men. I mean, I was so excited. And I went up to Doug, that guy who was running it from NBAA, and I said, listen, when there's q and I need, I need you to call on me. I'm going to raise my hand, call on me. I'm going to be postured right in the middle of the room. He said, I know what you're going to do. Okay. The minute they were done, my hand went up. He went, Susan. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, five FAA men. Okay. I said, gentlemen, 
I have waited 25 years for this opportunity. I'm so happy to see you. And they were just looking at me smiling. And I said, why can we not have a mandated FAR requiring egress train flight attendants in the back of our jets? Our lives matter just like commercial airlines, passengers' lives matter. And may I say two words to you? Teterboro lap dancer, Montrose, Colorado, Dick Ebersole's son is dead. Hmm. And they just looked at me. It was like talking to five people that were deaf, dumb, and blind. They didn't even respond. And I said, excuse me, can you answer me, please? And they said, it's up to the NBAA. It's up to your association to do this, not us. And I've been screaming at them for years at the NBAA, too. And I listen, I love Ed Boland. He knows me by name and face, and I think he's a great guy. I don't understand why, you know, why this isn't being given attention if we are in an industry that mitigates risk. It's, I just don't get it. Well, Susan, where can our listeners uh, learn more about the world of Susan Friedenberg uh, in the activities that you're involved in? Of my amazing five-day, I'm doing Zoom trainings now because of COVID and all the variants and everything. Um, so it's a five-day, 50-hour Zoom training. It's going really well. People don't have to leave home. They, you know, they can, they don't have to spend money on an airline ticket or a hotel or food or anything. And um, it's a really great training and they can uh, reach out to me uh, through www.corporateflightattendanttraining.com. And can I, can I tell you my syllabus real quick? Yes, of course. Okay, thank you. Um, this is my syllabus. I, I'm so passionate about this. Um, defining the corporate aviation flight attendant, the distinctions between contract and full-time employment, the differences between the federal air regulations were applicable so that they understand 91 and 135. Uh, marketing yourself in the industry, managing yourself as a business person, because when you're marketing yourself, when you're flying contract, you are a businesswoman or man. You're out there looking for work. So you need to consider that you are a business person. Interviewing information, salary negotiations, resumes and cover letters, telephone and email etiquette. I mean, you know, when you leave your number, leave it slowly at the front of the message, the end of the message. Make sure that your phone is charged, that you have message space. I, it's, you get crazy when it says the mailbox is full. What if a pilot's trying to reach you to tell you the trip just changed to the next day? Or now you have 10 people instead of four. Um, developing a professional image and dressing for success, how to dress appropriately. Corporate culture food safety awareness, the language of business aviation catering, catering communication skills to the caterer, food, dietary, food allergy, eating trends, religious catering observations, and uh, religious, well, I said that, and just dietary restrictions, allergies like that. Catering, food presentation, and packaging, because every aircraft's galley is different. Oven sizes are different. Microwave sizes are different. Trip prep from assignment to the trip's completion. I teach them what to do from the minute they're called to take a trip until that aircraft lands. In sequence of in-flight service duties and aircraft responsibilities, 
remain overnight responsibilities, cleaning the plane, cleaning it, grooming it, restocking it. Uh, CRM, crew resource management, not just with the pilots, but with the flight department. And I teach them international trip planning to remote places in the world, how to get an aircraft ready to be in the middle of uh, Africa for two weeks, uh, ordering enough catering on dry ice and coolers in the back of the plane like that. Um, and uh, intense augmented crew change application. If you're switching crews going from Philadelphia to Anchorage, you get off, another girl gets on, and then, you know, I'm in China for two weeks. Well, not now. I wouldn't be there. But you know what I'm saying. Just, you know, ha how, to, how to switch off. International customs, safety, and cultural awareness, and crew fatigue management. How to take care of yourself on the road. It takes the body 12 to 24 hours per time zone to recover from a trip. And the older you are, the harder it is to get normal again. And it's an intense training. And I mean, I'm, I'm teaching them overflight permits, advance notice requirements, runway incursions, weight bearing capabilities, laugh serve. I mean, I'm teaching them pilot stuff. So I've had pilots say to me, when I see your name on a resume, I know I have a good flight attendant. This sounds like a uh, significantly different job than, than being a uh, commercial flight attendant. Totally. Which would you prefer doing, commercial or or private, and why? Well, I don't I don't want to be on an airline with three hundred people um, in these times um, with COVID and the variants and people aggravated. They don't have any leg space and delays and you know you you read it all the time. They're punching flight attendants beating them up. I mean, it's just outrageous, you know, and it's not the way it was when I flew. I mean, I watched that flight attendant movie yesterday um, from the beginning of time with flight attendants when you had to be a nurse and you couldn't be married and they would weigh you and, you know, just measure you and all of this. Yeah, I mean, they don't do that anymore, of course, but, you know, I, don't, I, I love the detail of being on a $60 million jet and the culinary and making sure the passengers, when I do an aircraft to a point that somebody bought a brand new airplane and they'll call me and I'll come out and measure every drawer and I have a seven page passenger profile form from the toothpaste they like, if they like um, ice in their beverages, you know, I mean, every food allergy, if they want floss, I mean, just everything. I mean, there's just everything is in there. If they have pets, you know, what kind of pets, you know, what do you need for your pets? You know, your grandchildren, where do you want me to birth the airplane for you? I mean, it's a very intense seven page profile. So I love the detail to what we do. I'm a very detail oriented person. And there's nothing nicer than getting off an airplane and having a passenger give you a hug and say, thank you. We just came from my mother's funeral and we've been so upset and you made this trip really nice for us. Thank you. What you're describing really sounds like the the kind of hospitality that you would find if you were at a you know a three star restaurant or something like that. Kind of, yeah, yeah. But with you know with commercial, and I'm not putting the commercial girls down and guys because they have such a hard job. But it's not the way it was when I started flying. It's a whole different thing. You know, I don't want to push a cart up and down an aisle. And 
and and be verbally abused. And what Susan was referring to was uh, last Tuesday night on the PBS uh, uh, network, uh, The American Experience, there was uh, the episode called Come Fly With Me. They wanted to see the world and ended up changing it. And uh, we'll have the links to that in the show notes. I just added it. Cool. Oh, it was really interesting. However, one thing I must have, I've just got to say this one thing because I was just talking to a, a flight attendant friend of mine at Southwest today and we were having a... Uh, uh, an intense discussion on uh, LinkedIn with a, uh, a United pilot, and uh, they were talking about being paid. And the one thing about uh, pilots is that we would get paid a guarantee every month. I mean, we whether we flew or not, we got paid for probably 75 hours. Uh, and so if the airplane was late getting out or what, because you got paid anyway. Flight attendants on the commercial side, on the airline side, do not get that. So they don't get paid until they start moving that airplane. That's right. That I just cannot believe, along with this uh, issue of not having a, a trained flight attendant in the uh, in the back of a corporate aircraft, I can never understand how uh, uh, somebody like Sarah Nelson, who's in, we've had on the show, uh, I love her. really uh, a really uh, energetic uh, lady who who gets things done, and and even uh, their union has never been able to get that passed, so that flight attendants can get paid something when they're sitting on the ground uh, like the pilots. I, you know, I, I grant you. It, it's just not fair. I mean, the pay, as you say, Rob, you know, they don't get, they, they show up, they sign in an hour or two hours before departure, and then they get on the plane, there's a four-hour delay, they didn't offload the passengers, and they're not paid until that plane pushes off the gate. That's not fair, and they get a very low hourly rate. We are paid a daily rate, if your contract, our contract daily rates are anywhere between 600 and 900 a day, plus all your expenses. And um, that means if you're sitting in Hawaii for a week, you're still getting that daily rate. And uh, full-time salaries are anywhere, depending on where you are in the country, um, Full-time salaries are anywhere between um, seventy and I have a friend making one hundred and thirty thousand, um, and he, his plane is ninety-one and one thirty-five. So he's he's flying the owners and he's also doing charter, um, plus lots of benefits. But you know, I I just I just it just hurts my heart that commercial flight attendants are not being paid what they deserve. All right, Susan, uh, tell us. Uh one more time, the uh, the website. www.corporateflightattendanttraining.com Or they can call my office, 215-625-4811. And that's here in Philadelphia. Very good, very good. All right. Susan, I want to thank you. Um, I hope it's not <laughs> eight more years uh, until we have you on the show again. And um, I also hope that the next time you come on that uh, we'll have some uh, some significant progress to talk about, hopefully. We could be celebratory. We could be celebrating. But anybody out there who has an in with the FAA, please, please, let's get an FAR. Does anybody have an in with the FAA? I don't know. 
Thanks for doing this, Susan. And if you're listening, NBAA, let's mitigate risk. Ed Bolin, I love you. Let's get moving on this. (laughs) Thank you, Susan. What's up with the geeks? Max Trescott, you must have been doing some interesting things. You haven't been here in, what, one or two weeks, was it? One week? Indeed. I, I missed last week because I was on a trip. So I had a uh, one of the longer vision jet trips that I've had oh, in at least uh, six months. Uh, sometimes I end up doing a lot of local work, uh, but occasionally I get a longer trip, which is kind of fun. Uh, and so last Saturday I left for Michigan, flew from Oakland to Michigan with uh, someone who is now a part owner of uh, an older uh, vision jet, a, a G1 version. He has, hasn't yet uh, taken his type training, so uh, he needs me until he does the uh, the type rating. And uh, it was fun. He brought along some family members. We, uh, since we couldn't uh, use full gas because we had four people on board plus two smaller dogs, and we ended up making uh, two fuel stops along the way. And it was kind of fun doing the flight planning to try and make sure we didn't have to make an additional uh, stop. I find that uh, you know, three legs is fine. But, oh, man, when you get to that fourth leg, that's just a really long day. Uh, and so uh spent a couple of days in Michigan while he was while he was visiting his son. And then we came back and did it again. Difference coming back was that uh, we had headwinds and that we were just going to Reno uh, since I dropped him off there and then I flew the jet myself uh, the following morning from there back to uh, to Oakland. So fun trip, about 16 hours uh, in the jet uh, total on the uh, the trip. And anybody who wants to hear all the details of all the flight planning and all the various little issues that uh, cropped up uh, can tune into Aviation News Talk. Just check out episode 316, which I uh, released a couple of days ago, and uh, you'll hear all about that trip. Big question is, Max, did you get any Detroit pizza while you were in Michigan? Detroit-style pizza is a whole new style, you know. I, I got to tell you, it was 20 degrees when I woke up each morning, and uh, my interest was uh, yeah, staying close to the hotel and not freezing to death. <laughs> so it was it was cold when we were out there. All right, and Micah, you've got some uh, bit of news for us. Well, yeah, I uh, it was yesterday as we're recording this on Sunday. I'm a regular listener to uh, Leo Laporte and Micah Sargent with the Tech Guys show. And occasionally I'll call when I have a question or an annoyance. And I called in yesterday because I had a problem with my iPhone. The caller before, before me was talking about uh, his issue and then mentioned that he likes to watch uh, uh, airplanes taken off from LAX on, on YouTube. And he says he heard about it on the Airplane Geeks. And... Uh, Leo says, oh, well, speaking of the airplane geeks, we have Micah in the waiting room, and uh, he brought me on. We talked a little bit about the show, and uh, and I got to thank Leo for educating me about everything that I learned so I could uh, help out in interviewing when we had uh, David Helgott on for in-flight connectivity and Roger Sands about airplane Wi-Fi. Everything I know about that stuff, I learned from Leo Laporte and the Tech Guys show. Fantastic. Yeah, that's uh, I've, I've listened to uh, the Tech Guys as well as some of uh, the other Shows that Leo puts out uh, for oh many many years, really uh, really good quality information and uh, worthwhile, definitely worthwhile. All right, and uh, also uh, Micah, um, you have a shout out for us, I think. Well, yeah, you know, I uh, among the things that I listen to, I always have National Public Radio on, and uh, one of the affiliates. Uh, 
American Public Radio uh, has a show called Marketplace, and they did a wonderful full episode, half-hour story on sustainable aviation fuel. It includes a lot of what we talk about here on the Airplane Geeks, but it was really well done and set up in a way that the general public can understand all the complexities that we've talked about. Uh, the title of the show is a Biden administration bet on sustainable aviation fuel, and we'll have a link to it in the show notes. It's uh, interesting. If you're a regular listener to the geeks, you, you, you know most of what they're discussing, but it's basically saying how there's no free lunch. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, and that'll be in the show notes for sure. All right, on to some listener mail. You know, we get lots of listener mail, more than we can uh, relate on the episodes. Uh, but some of the most enjoyable listener mail, to me anyway, is when we hear from people that know more about something than we do. <laughs> and then, uh, then we get educated. And uh, we recently received uh, this, uh, this email from, uh, we'll say, an anonymous listener because it came through from John Doe. So uh, this is from John. John says, Hi, I'm recently retired from Boeing, where I worked in industrial engineering on various programs, the last being on the MAX in Renton. I want to clarify what Boeing means when they say traveled work. That's something we talk about. We talked about, rather, uh, I think last time. And uh, John says, When the airplane moves, this is, this is a, a manufacturing process issue, which having been a, a manufacturing guy in in the past. This was fascinating to me. So he explains, when the airplane moves from one position to the next, this is at Boeing, and the scheduled work in the previous position, we call these positions control codes, has not been finished and the airplane moves forward, the unfinished work is called traveled work. This work is considered, quote, out of sequence, the plane moves forward because Renton has moving lines. If the airplane was held up because of unfinished work and did not move forward, the factory would become, quote, jig-locked. So one airplane could hold up the build sequence of the airplanes behind it. Now he goes on, Boeing's build philosophy has always been to adhere to the master schedule and allow the planes to move forward to that schedule. Traveled work causation can be part shortages, parts breakage or loss due to poor material handling or, port, or parts that have to be scrapped due to rejection tags. In other words, a part was damaged upon install, or etc. Other causes can be the discovery of a previous part that had been installed upstream that has to come off and be replaced for various reasons. Often worker overtime is required and mandated for the mechanics to catch up. When work is traveled, the mechanics and associated tools required have to travel to the next position, which is inefficient and causes disruption. Disruption is often calculated into forecasts for labor hours and accounted for in estimates. That's kind of interesting to me. Also, the master schedule will include buffer days in, quote, blanks, which are flow days with no airplane to allow for additional time. This often will be utilized for new airplane models or other reasons. So they're building into the schedule this, you know, this buffer, this compensation for events that they anticipate are going to take place, but you don't know. The master schedule rate for suppliers is being kept hot, quote, hot, which is a term that means suppliers are working at a faster rate than the factory. This allows for a buffer to, build up, to be built up and keeps suppliers, employees employed. 
travel work from one supplier can occur when it is known ahead of time. An upstream supplier notifies Boeing that work will have to be finished at the downstream factory for various reasons. This often, this happened often on the 787 program, where Charleston didn't finish work and they shipped the fuselage component anyway. The traveled work consisted of system installation, usually like wiring. Finally, parts or components that are on a supplier assembly that are discovered in the Boeing factory are called escapes. These are bad. It means the supplier, or even Boeing, didn't notice the error. An escape can even travel to the airline where it discovers something amiss. The door plug issue started with an escape when Boeing noticed rivets on the door frame needed fixing, and the missing four door bolts was an escape from Boeing. John says, hope this clarifies, uh, clarifies some of these terms. You know, at, at Pratt & Whitney, we use that same term, escape, in, in the, in the same, uh, same context. And I'd be curious to know how Boeing treats escapes, because at Pratt, escapes were viewed in a positive way. If you uncovered escapes, that was a good thing, because... That gave you the data uh, to address the problems because what we would do is, is we would document all of these escapes or turnbacks, things like that, and then uh, um, analyze them. What are the uh, most frequently occurring escapes or what are the escapes that uh, maybe don't occur very frequently but have a very large impact? And those are the ones you go after for a process uh, from a process improvement standpoint. So that's kind of quality culture. And I don't know if if Boeing uh, treats this topic in the same way from a culture standpoint, because the, the the traveled work concept is strange to me. It's it's saying that it's inefficient. It's it's quality problems. Well, if it was a Toyota production line, the line would stop until the problem was fixed, and the problem would be fixed forever, permanently fixed. Whereas the Boeing approach seems to be more like you accommodate problems. And that's different than preventing problems from recurring. But that's just looking in from the outside. Did you guys ever watch I Love Lucy? Yes. Oh, yeah, the chocolate line. <laughs> Remember the chocolate line episode? That's exactly what's going on. They would, they're running the line too fast, and they don't want to slow it down to get it right. And that's because they need to maximize shareholder value. And that tops everything else. Well, you think about the num- number of parts. I mean, what's the bill of materials for a, a 737? Is that 100,000 parts or somewhere in that order? What would you guess? Um, yeah, between half that and that amount, I would guess. Okay. So whatever it is, this is called 100,000 parts. All you need is one to keep that plane from shipping. So I think what they're recognizing is the odds are good that with all those parts, one of them's not going to be ready on time. And so moving the airplanes along and playing catch up later and putting those things in at the very end of the process makes total sense. I mean, if you had to hold up every plane every time you were missing one part, man, the the line just wouldn't move. So it kind of makes sense to me. I guess I would turn that around and say that if you if you if something happens that stops the line, you go figure out what happened and you go figure out how to prevent that from happening again. That stopping the line is the ultimate uh, motivation for solving the problem. 
all these stories that we we read uh, before tonight uh, about Boeing uh, talked about that that process and how everything is focused on improving the process and and but but it doesn't folk that doesn't necessarily mean they're focusing on quality. Hence my comment about have now needing a VP to uh, you know claim that they're looking at quality. And so you haven't been. All these years, I mean, that that's what is sort of implied. And the whole thing is a bit silly. And again, it's this got to move. The, the, the train's got to move. Train's got to move. Well, I mean, I'm not a I'm not a, a, an economist or, a uh, you know, but I don't know what what speed those aircraft travel at across the Boeing floor. Uh, but I just wondered while I was reading all those, what would happen yeah, to the quality of the product, if uh, if they slowed the travel down fifteen percent, you know, I don't know. I'm just I'm just guessing, but I'm saying to to even consider that versus how much money. Look at how much money Boeing has probably lost since that first. Um, well, even going back to the initial uh, problems with the 787 before it was certified, but certainly since that those two MAX crashes. What, what do you think this has cost Boeing in dollars and in corporate reputation, publicity? I mean, it's got to be billions and billions and billions. And so what have they saved by rushing everything through? And, and hence that story we read tonight about the uh, the fellow that was, uh, you know, the uh, mechanic that was playing somewhat differently on the line and just looking at every little thing and uh, as opposed to just saying, yeah, it looks like it's going okay. Uh, but, I mean, it, the point is to produ- produce a quality product. And Boeing is not producing quality products. Not anymore. Uh, I mean, so Boeing's not out of this uh, whole mess yet by a long shot. I think this is going to get worse before it gets better myself. Yeah. All right. Well, I just got a, uh, oh, a battery message that my battery is low and I'm about to get uh, dropped off. So we've got a couple other uh, emails from listeners, which uh, will either save for next time or... Save the Sam Abusamid for when we can all talk about yeah, it. I, yeah, I think so. I'll, I'll save these for, for next time. So um, let's uh, let's close it out quickly before I, before my computer dies. So we want to thank you all for listening to the Airplane Geeks podcast. Our guest this episode was Susan Friedenberg. Susan, again, uh, thanks so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. It was a pleasure, and I was honored that I was asked. And thank you for the platform to try to get safety in the back of our airplanes. Thank you. Our pleasure. Uh, you can find us at airplanegeeks.com. You can reach us via email. Write to us at thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com. And let's see, we'll start with uh, David Vanderhoof. Uh, where do folks find you? Uh, you can find me at the American Helicopter Museum, of course. Um, we look forward to having a bunch of our book club is coming up in March. And we have um, something for people coming up. That will be really fun. We've come up with a drafts and drones program. Nothing like combining alcohol and drones for adult beverages and drones. <laughs> so we're looking forward to having that this summer. I love it. Um, you know, so so it, it, that will be an interesting program. Considering and but as well as I'm, we're coming up on. I'm just starting on our Apollo program. So 
We'll, we'll be talking about Saturn V and the lunar modules and what's that got to do with helicopters? Most of those things were recovered by helicopters, so there is a twist there. So Yeah, good. All right, Rob Mark, how about you? Find me at uh, any place that has Jetwine in the uh, name and uh, in between the pages of a few of the more prominent aviation journals in the uh, country. Terrific. Max Trescott, you're up. The usual place, check out Aviation News Talk wherever you get your podcast. And if you want to shoot me an email, head out to aviationnewstalk.com. Click on contact at the top of the page. And finally, Micah. You can find me. I'm still on Twitter. It's MainFly, at MainFly, M-A-I-N-E, like the state. Fly, let's go fly. And you can also find me with our good friend, Pasadena Brian Coleman, on the Journey is the Reward podcast. We released a new episode Monday as we're recording this of this week, episode 64, an interview with Julie, one of the directors of the Yankee Air Museum. And I'm Max Flight. You can find me at 30,000feet.com. So please join us again next time as we talk aviation on the Airplane Geeks podcast. Bye, everybody. And we lost Max. I think he's frozen. He lost his battery. He can probably close it out from there. Yep, probably so. Thank you again. Thank you again, everybody. It was a pleasure and an honor. Um, how did a nice Jewish girl like you from New Jersey become a flight attendant? Oh, may I share it? Of course. I won't be on the show, but I just wanted to know. <laughs> oh, yeah, I would love to tell you this. So um, my grandparents used to go to Havana, Cuba when you could do that. Um, instead of Florida, they would go to Havana, Cuba. And Daddy, I, I, I'm still a person that called my parents Mommy and Daddy. Um, and I lost my mother a year ago, February 4th. She died in my arms. I've been a real mess. And Daddy died in 2016. It killed, no, I'm sorry, 2018. He was 96. Um, I just have to tell you, my Daddy... I'm going to send it to you, Rob, and to Max, and then I'd like all of you. Have you served? Have you guys all been in the service? I have not. Yeah, I have. Um, my daddy was a major World War II hero. My father was a medic on Omaha Beach. My oh, father God. left the war. He was gone four and a half years. He left with two Purple Hearts, two Silver Stars, two Bronze Medals, honored by the French government on D-Day um, June 6, 2016, I was comped through um, a Veterans Association, a Citation 4 that took us to New Orleans for Daddy um, to be honored at the World War II Museum for his heroism. And um, they're building a 3,500-pound th monument of my dad to honor all World War II veterans in both campaigns in Atlantic City, where we're from. Um, I'm going to send you the link so you can see this. It's just unbelievable. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. My father was amazing. My father was amazing. And my mother was just outrageous. And I was blessed to be their daughter. So many people complain about their parents. I, I am honored to have been Bernie and Phyllis's daughter. So anyway, daddy took me to the airport. I was five years old. We went to the Philadelphia airport and, um, 
you know, I was five years old to take Nanny and, and Daddy Jake, Daddy's dad, to uh, to go to Havana. And there were turbo props. And I saw the stewardesses with their hats and, you know, just the emotion in the airport, people coming and going for all different reasons, you know. Um, it, it could have been a wedding, a funeral, a party, whatever, all the emotion and the pilots with those stupid hats. I still don't know why they wear those stupid hats. But anyway. Um, Good question. Oh, please. I asked this one pilot one time. I was airlining myself to go teach a training in California. And there was this Delta pilot. I said, why do you wear a hat? Don't you think it's enough with the hats? Because my wife respects me when I wear my hat. I said, oh, do you wear it in bed at night? Because <laughs> I have no, you know, I'm always finding humor and stuff. But anyway, I was so taken so taken by the airport and the emotion. I said, Daddy, I want to be a stewardess. I want to, and I used to lay on the grass in front of our house and watch the planes, you know, from NAFEC, because we're from Atlantic City, you know, and I was like, ah, oh. I said, I want to be a stewardess, Daddy. He goes, honey, you can be anything you want in life. I support you. I was five years old. That's great. Pretty That's cool. great. Super. I thought you were a little short at that point. Well, I'll tell you, <laughs> Bran, yeah, at that point. But you know what? Being five, two and a half, Braniff rejected me because I was too little. Eastern rejected me. They said, are you a good swimmer? I said, well, I grew up across the street from the Atlantic Ocean. I can, I can swim. I'm just not a really strong swimmer. Banished. <laughs> but the thing about that movie, you know, when I flew for American, um, they would weigh you. Yep. And there was a girl, Mary Del Lucas. She was senior to me. She had her period, so she was a little, you know, full of fluids. She was two pounds overweight. They fired her. That's the way it was, yeah. It was really different And we time. didn't have male flight attendants. They changed it from stewardesses to flight attendants when they started hiring right. guys. Yep. yep. I never flew with a man in uh, the first three years that I flew. And, I, I, and I, we never had female pilots, of course. Yeah. I still don't have many. <laughs> well, when I walk on an airplane, you know, I look to the left immediately, and if there's a girl, I go, yay! Yay! <laughs> I still remember the first flight I was on that had two ladies up front, <gasps> which was, oh, gosh, a good 20 years ago, actually. It was a smaller, uh, smaller turboprop out of uh, Newark. 